If you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to open to Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew back in front of you, and that may help you to be able to follow along and, uh, and journey with us as we're uh, looking through the scriptures. We're in this series called Encountering God in Dark Places, and we're going to walk through over the course of the Lenten season some of the, um, some of the dark places where God meets us, and he does meet us in those dark places, and that's uh, why it's so vitally important for us to talk through this, because we're going to end up in the dark places one way or another, and it's important for us to recognize that God does meet us there. And so uh, that's kind of where we're going. Um, The last two weeks have been vitally foundational for all that we're about to do, and it's impossible for me to recap that uh, in a way that would uh, give us enough time to do what we need to do today. So I'm going to encourage you, if you were not here the last two weeks, to go back and listen. Uh, We talked first two weeks ago about the face of God shining towards us and why that's so important uh, to bring us to joy, and that God is is constantly doing that, inviting us into joy through his presence, his uh, face shining towards us. And then last week, we did a kind of a marathon journey, Genesis to Revelation, and walked through kind of a a biblical theology of suffering. And uh, again, I can't bring every piece of that out, but a couple things that are really important for you to hear and to get, that God created all that is perfect and without suffering. It was pristine and beautiful and uh, us in perfect fellowship with God. And it was sin entering into the world that brought suffering, Uh, not God as the author of suffering, but God as the author of life, and therefore in humanity, giving us the honor of choosing. And we've continually chose wrong. That's part of the process of uh, being human. But God, in his both power and love, chooses rather than to fix suffering, which means eradicating you and me, because that's the only way we can get rid of sin, right? Um, In order to... um, not fix, get rid of suffering, but redeem suffering, steps in on our behalf and begins a process where he doesn't just in the power, uh, like the, the Moses kind of power with the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea delivering people, but also in tender love uh, as the prophets uh, predicted that God would come as uh, among us, one who would co-suffer with us. So both the power and the love of God seen through the person of Jesus Christ. And that invites us into a journey with suffering where um, we find glory in suffering. And if you want to try to piece all that together, you can go back to last week and try to dig through that a little bit. But um, we're invited into the redemption of our suffering while we wait for the reversal of that suffering. There is a time up ahead of us uh, when we enter into the fullness of eternity where God will wipe every tear from our eye, where um, all that is broken and wrong will be made right. But until then, God is redeeming the brokenness. And he's doing it in us, and it's, it's difficult, and it's not always a fun journey, but it's really, really important. And so that's the journey that we're going to be entering into. So now for the next five weeks, we're going to use specific images that will help you hopefully put um, a, a, a kind of a, an image to some of the stuff we're talking about. So we're going to begin with the image of a hospital. Isn't it great? We have two screens now. How about the facilities team getting all that? The tech people? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, you can see from wherever you are other than the front row where my neck hurts. But everybody else can see really well, so that's awesome. Um, That's good, I can dance anyway, it's great. Um, So uh, as we enter into this idea of a hospital, I want you to think in terms of suffering. I wanna frame that with a story. So 
Um, Amanda and I, my now wife Amanda, um, began, we really got to know each other our senior year of college. That was a long time ago. We won't go how far back that was, but it was a while ago. Um, and as we got to know each other, um, we became friends and we're spending more and more time together. And along that journey, her father, who was 48 at the time, was diagnosed with a large tumor in his kidney. And so the early part of our friendship leading into our dating was him going through a very invasive surgery, uh, surgery that the doctors said they felt was very successful and uh, removing that tumor. Uh, her dad was, uh, they lived in a small town in Western PA and uh, her dad, uh, with, with no exaggeration, was easily the most well-known person in the town. He uh, led, uh, he ran a store right downtown and literally knew everybody there. Everybody knew him. He was a very outspoken follower of Jesus. Uh, he uh, came to faith later in life and just loved to tell everybody about it. So anybody who would come into the store, he could get them all the hardware that they needed as well as a little bit of Jesus to go along with it. So it was, uh, it was kind of the way that he, he lived, the way that his story worked. Well, that was in November when that tumor was taken out. Um, in February, uh, as part of a routine scan, they found that there were tumors all through his lungs, that the um, surgery that they thought was fully successful uh, had not gotten everything and the cancer had spread into his lungs. Through that spring, as Amanda and I were dating and uh, getting ready to get engaged, uh, there was this kind of up and down journey for him. He would get a little bit better, and he would get a little bit worse, and he would get a little bit better. And there was um, prayer like nothing in my 21 years at that time had ever seen. Um, people praying round the clock, uh, people fasting. When I say fasting, fasting for weeks at a time, um, just crying out to God on his behalf. Well, Amanda and I got engaged early May, and uh, right around that same time, uh, he was diagnosed with that cancer having moved into his brain stem and into his spine. And so the journey through the summer was uh, really difficult. We were planning a wedding and journeying with him as uh, he became weaker and weaker. And there continued to be prayer and there continued to be just a, a crying out on his behalf, asking God, knowing that God could heal, asking God to heal. Well, through the middle of September, he kept getting weaker, had fallen a few times, and finally by the end of September, uh, he fell and was just unable to be moving around and so went into the hospital for what would become an extended stay. And the wedding that we had planned for mid-November, we were um, encouraged late October to have in the boardroom of the hospital because the doctors didn't feel that he would make it to the public ceremony on the 15th. And so we ended up getting married October 25th in a hospital boardroom in order for him to be physically present there with us. We did have him there uh, November 15th, or alive November 15th, uh, when we ultimately got married in a public ceremony. But um, th there was this journey that had been going on. Um, Amanda is the oldest of four kids, so she became 22 during that time. Uh, there was five years to the next sibling because she must have been a very difficult child. So, you know, <laughs> that, that happens. Some of you are parents know, like, sometimes you got to wait a little bit, right? So that was probably the way it worked. Um, so she had three siblings, then uh, five years younger, seven years younger, and ten years younger. And so this young family with this 
man who loved Jesus and was passionate about Jesus, knew everybody and had a platform to be able to declare his grace to everybody, is lying sick in a hospital bed, dying. And God doesn't seem to be answering those prayers. Where's God in the middle of that? You might have situations that are very similar. Some of you have situations that are even more dramatic than that. Where's God in the middle of that? Like, where does God show up in the midst of that kind of sickness and disease and suffering? Philip Yancey, in his book, Where's God When It Hurts, makes this statement. If our faith cannot answer that question, then we have nothing to say to a broken world. If our faith cannot answer that question, we have nothing to say to a broken world. And that's a challenging quote because there were a lot of times in that journey I'm not sure I had an answer to that question. Where's God in the midst of this? What I hope to do today is walk you through the scriptures, not answer every single question that goes with that, not be able to give you a comprehensive view of the way sickness and disease work and how God meets us there, but to at least be able to give you through the scriptures the answer to that question. Where is God in the midst of that? And so we're going to start with a story from Mark chapter 5. Sam Richard's going to come and he's going to read to us. This is a story that's kind of complicated, uh, two different things that are happening all at the same time. And so I want to invite you to, as you listen, try to imagine all that's going on around Jesus as uh, this story unfolds. So he's going to begin to read in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21, and read through the end of the chapter. If you haven't found it already, it can be found on page 840 in the Pew Bible, in the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. <clears throat> And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned and in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to him, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. 
and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Sam. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we open your word, we long to encounter you in your glory and your goodness and your spirit and your power. God, as we try to tackle difficult questions like this one, the last thing we need is human wisdom. And so, God, I pray that you would guard my words, that they would come from your spirit alone, that the things that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten, but the things that come from your spirit would remain, that you would speak to us and that we would be changed by you. And so, God, meet us, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So there's a lot going on in this story. Um, uh, two complex narratives that are being woven together. Um, there's uh, some, I think, really, really important things that are happening that we'll just barely touch on uh, because of time today. But I want to do a deep dive into one of these stories. And so what I want to look at are, uh, the, first of all, the way that sickness turns us inward. W what happens with that inward turn? The real deep longing of our heart, the longing that we have for God, and then we're going to ask the question both today and each week through the Lenten season, how do we encounter God in the midst of this? Where do we encounter God in the midst of, of sickness and even in sickness unto death? How do we encounter him? So turning inward, longing for God and encountering God. So like I said, this is a complex story, uh, two different narratives that are happening. So we have Jairus and his little daughter, we find out later, is 12 years old. Uh, she is sick unto death. So he comes to Jesus and he says, please, you need to come and heal my daughter. Uh, this would have been relatively normal within the ancient world where younger people would get sick unto death, but it's not normal when it's your kid. Can we agree with that? So Jairus, when he comes, is, uh, is full of desperation. He comes to Jesus, would you, please, you're the only one that can do it. Can you come and touch my, if you touch her, she'll be healed. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus says yes, and he begins to journey. And as he journeys, we are encountered with another sickness, this time a nameless, faceless woman who has been bleeding for also 12 years, interesting parallels. As long as this little girl's been alive, she has been bleeding, and she has sought all kinds of medical treatment and has not only not gotten better, she's gotten worse. Now, a couple of things that the original hearers would have uh, known that you and I may, pick, uh, may not pick out. First of all, um, the, that, that discharge that she's having would have made her incredibly weak and uh, would have been a... Um, a 
a physical weight on her for sure, but it was not lethal, meaning uh, there's a, a difference in, um, in seriousness of these two different illnesses that are putting out in front of us. Jairus' daughter is uh, going to die, and this woman is very, very weak. But the second thing that all original hearers would have understood was that the life that this woman is leading, as some would say, is worse than death. Because the, the, the discharge that she has, the bleeding, would make her ceremonially unclean. And so what that means very practically within the Jewish world is that for 12 years, she likely wouldn't have had physical contact with anyone and if she did, it would have been accidental and would have caused a major, not just inconvenience, but time uh, layout as well as resource layout on their part in order to be able to become clean again. People would have avoided her literally like the plague. She would have lived for 12 years with people with an invisible bubble around her, not coming close to her for fear that they may accidentally bump into her. She's desperate. The, the physical symptoms and the weakness that would have come were incredibly minor compared to the emotional state that she was in. And so what we have is this nameless, faceless woman who is coming towards Jesus, seeing, knowing that he is going to this 12-year-old girl who's about to die. And she is so focused on herself, that she's willing to touch Jesus. Now, let me just explain why that is. Now, now um, I, I, I'm not uh, talk about this in just a second. I'm not trying to denigrate where she's at. I want you to see the desperation with which she's living. She, is, she, she knows to her understanding that by touching Jesus, she is literally stealing the healing of this young girl. Now, follow me in her mind, we would look at that and say the idea of being clean and unclean is something that Jesus would eradicate and we would be able to um, see those things as surface level, almost kind of um, old wives tale kind of ideas. But she would have seen through the Levitical law, the idea that cleanness and uncleanness was really, really significant to God. So even if Jesus never found out that she touched him, when she goes to this little girl, she knows it's the power of God that heals, and the power of God is not going to work through this prophet that she knows to be Jesus because he has become unclean. You see? So when she goes to touch Jesus, she's not just going for healing. That's the way that we read it. But the way the original hearers would have understood it is that she was not just going to be healed, she was going to take the healing that this girl had coming through Jesus, and this girl was going to be condemned to death because of her actions. And she did it anyway. Why? I, we don't know anything about this woman. My guess is she was a good Jewish woman. And if everything else was equal she would have very highly valued the ability of Jesus to heal from death a 12-year-old little girl who had her entire life ahead of her. But everything else was not equal. Because when we are sick, it becomes all about our sickness. And it, it, it's the same as everybody else, but very different. 
Have you ever experienced that? It's like, I, I know that other people are journeying through the same thing. I know they have cancer too. I know they had a heart attack too. I know they had a stroke too. I know that they're dealing with whatever it is. But for me, it's all consuming. That's what she felt. She was desperate. And by taking this step, she, she was literally putting herself before this little girl and forcing Jesus to heal her instead of this 12-year-old girl. So imagine her terror when Jesus stopped and said, somebody touched me. Now, this is the funny part of Mark's gospel, because as we're reading along, we are picturing dozens to hundreds of people walking alongside of Jesus, pressing in and trying to get close to Jesus to hear what the teacher's saying to his disciples as they're walking. And so he says to his disciples, someone touched me. And they're like, Like, seriously? Come on, man. Like, yes, everybody's touching you. Get over your OCD. Like, stop it. Like, just walk. You know, it's okay. Take a deep breath, you know? And he's like, no, no, no. It wasn't just that somebody touched me. Healing came out of me. And this woman had to shrivel. Because everybody there knows what would have happened if a bleeding woman... An unclean woman would have touched the clean teacher. The one thing he cannot do is continue on to Jairus' house to heal this little girl. So what's Jesus do? He doesn't chastise her. He doesn't shame her. He wants to look at her. Why? Well, see, this lady thought, as any of us would, that her greatest need was physical healing. If she could just be healed, then she would be able to enter into the rest of life. She wouldn't have this bubble around her. She'd be able to interact with people. She could be loved. She could be cared for. If only she could be healed. But Jesus knew physical healing is a small part of what she really needs. What she really needs is a full and complete healing, and that is not going to come just from her physical body being healed. She's longing for something, hope, joy, the presence of God himself. So in her longing, Jesus turns around and he comes back to her, and I picture him uh, touching her. We don't know. It's not recorded in specifics, but I picture him touching her, turning her face upward towards him and looking intentionally into her face. And look at what he says. This is verse 34. Not how dare you steal the healing from this girl. Not why did you make me unclean. What's he say? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In the midst of the inward turn, he sees the longing that she has and he meets her in the longing. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the, um, the way that joy builds is that when we're in relationship with one another and we're happy to see the other person, we're happy to be with the other person, that builds joy. Now put sickness into the mix. When we are sick, particularly a debilitating sickness, a sickness that can lead to death, when, when we think about encountering God, we immediately imagine encountering a God who is not happy to see us. If he's happy to see us, he would have fixed it by now, right? As we turn our heads to him, we we are not having joy built, not because of what he's doing, but because of what's in our head, what's in our heart. 
And then as we encounter other people, people for whom joy should be building, because as I see them and they see me and we're happy to see one another, joy becomes built up. But see, I'm not able to do that because I'm so inwardly focused. I'm so focused on the weight of what I'm dealing with. Rightly so, let me just say, I get it. Jesus gets it. That's why he doesn't chastise this woman. But joy is not built in the process. Why? Because I don't have enough bandwidth to be happy to see you. I I can't give toward you. I'm just wanting you to give towards me. That's what happens in the midst of that debilitating sickness. What's Jesus do in the middle of it? He steps in and he intentionally, face-to-face, eye-to-eye encounters this woman. How do we encounter God in sickness? Where do we see God in the midst of it? Well, I think the answer is right there. God desires to meet us face to face in the middle of it. Sometimes he heals. Sometimes he doesn't heal. But he always expresses love towards us face to face. Always. And what he's saying in the midst of sickness is, look at me. Turn your head to me. So, Amanda and I got married first, October 25th, and then again, November 15th in a public ceremony. That's why I tell people my second wife's my favorite. (laughs) And then her dad had hung on, we're convinced, because he had in his head from early on, November 15th is the day. He made it through the 15th and died on the 22nd. And so we went away very briefly for a honeymoon that was cut short, of course, came back, um, which we fully expected and had a celebration of life with a community that was crestfallen because we had believed that God would heal. We had prayed and we had fasted and we had cried out to God, God, you, you need to meet us in this. Look at, look at the opportunity for your glory. You ever negotiated with God like that? Look at the look, look how much we could help you, right? And so as we bring this before God over and over and over again and God seems to not answer the weight of that funeral service was really heavy and I remember Amanda at 22 by this time standing up and speaking to the family and friends that were there and she said some version of this We have, many of you, have prayed and fasted and cried out to God so that my dad would be healed. I want you to know that he is fully healed. Because in the end, the healing that we need, not the healing that we want, always, but the healing that we need is the face of God given to us, turned towards us, And if joy is built by being in relationship with one another and that other person being happy to see us, can you imagine the joy being built when Dan walked in and Jesus said, I'm so happy to see you? He was healed. Just wasn't healed the way that we had anticipated. Where where does God meet us in the midst of suffering? Well, sometimes he meets us in healing. In fact, I would argue that the Bible is explicitly clear that we are allowed, invited, and called to come and ask him over and over and over and over and over again. 
If you're bearing sickness, you are invited to come to God and ask him to heal you again and again and again. Keep asking. But also recognize that God is most concerned, just as Jesus was with this woman, that we would have joy in the midst of the journey. There's a Nobel Prize winner. I'm going to throw a quote up before you. I don't know uh, George Wald. I don't know if he's a follower of Jesus or not, but he makes this statement. When you have no experience of pain, it is rather hard to experience joy. And so whether or not he's a follower of Jesus, it fits very neatly into the biblical narrative. Where is God in the midst of suffering? Sickness, disease. He's meeting us in a way that can bring us joy that we may not have had in any other way. I will never know this side of eternity how Dan's life and journey to death marked not just us and our family, but hundreds of others. But I know that God meets us in the midst of our sickness. And whether or not he physically heals us, he gives us his presence. He gives us his face shining towards us. Where is God? How do we answer that question? Where is God in the midst of that kind of situation? He's right there looking at us. And because of sickness, because we turn inward, because we are so focused on what we're dealing with, it's often hard for us to look back. But sickness is a call for us to turn our heads back to the God who has been looking at us all along, to shine his face upon us, to bring us peace. Like I said, there's another part of the story that we don't have time to dig into, but it's really fascinating that Jesus left that encounter and went to Jairus' house anyway. And he healed the little girl who had died, but he said, don't worry, she's just sleeping. Isn't that great? I love it. Love Jesus. With it. And he goes and he heals her anyways. How does he do it? I don't mean the physical process of bringing her back to life. I mean, he was just touched by a bleeding woman. See, there's this thing that happens with Jesus, and this is the marker of it. You could, you could go all the way back to the birth of Jesus, and you could point at various times when Jesus turned water into wine, all the way through the time when Jesus resurrected from the dead. But somewhere in there, and I would put that marker right at Mark chapter 5, Jesus showed us that he was reversing the flow of the way the world worked. Here's what I mean by that. If you're dirty, you come into the house with dirty hands because you've been digging in the mud or you have a bunch of stuff on your hands. If you, if you touch something clean, that clean thing becomes dirty, right? That's the way it works. That's the way life works. But in Mark chapter 5, Jesus flipped that around and he reversed it. And all of a sudden, the unclean thing touched the clean thing and became clean. Jesus walks into the room with a dead body, the most unclean thing in Levitical law, and calls out of death life. And isn't it fascinating that the thing that was handed to the church for centuries now, 2,000 years and counting, was the blood of Jesus, according to 1 John chapter 1, that keeps on making us clean. How crazy is that? It's not the way it's supposed to work. The body broken. No, de death causes uncleanness. Nope, 
The body broken brings us life. Blood poured out. No, blood makes us have to go through a purification process. No, blood keeps on making us clean. And as we go, week after week, year after year, month after month, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we have an opportunity to pause in the midst of whatever's going on, the sickness that we're dealing with, the challenges of our life, some of the other dark places that we're going to be talking about in the weeks that come, and, and we're able to stop and look into the face of God and receive from him. Receive the joy and the peace and the grace that he is already offering to us. We just need to stop and turn. And so I'm going to ask us to do that, to stop and turn towards the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, and to receive cleansing, to receive a reminder of the grace and the peace that he gives to us. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come. They're going to lead us as we go, and I'm going to invite those of you who are serving communion to come and to take the elements around the room. And as they do that, let me just kind of walk you through what this process is going to be like. There's going to be seven stations around the room. You can go to the one that's closest to you or furthest from you. It doesn't matter. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you're invited. You're invited to come and to receive the broken body and the shed blood and to be reminded of the fact that God's face is turned towards you. If you go to a station that has a metal tray, that's a gluten-free station, and it's also a touch-free station. So you'll be able to have a piece of gluten-free bread put into your hand. You'll be able to take a cup and to uh, have words of blessing spoken over you, reminding you of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. If you go to a station with a basket and a goblet, uh, that's regular bread. You'll be able to go and take that bread, dip it into the cup, and receive those same words. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to do that. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, just a couple quick things for you. First of all, we're really thrilled that you're here and really thrilled that you're hearing this truth because we believe it really is what this life is all about, what God has called us into and what will be truest in eternity. But if uh, you are not ready to pursue him today, I would ask you not to go to one of these stations. And the reason is really simple. Um, it's simply because this is what's called a covenant act. It's us saying, I want to follow you with all of my life. And so if you're not there wanting to follow him with all of your life, I would just ask that you don't go and say that you are. Um, rather, there's going to be a lot of movement, and that's so don't feel like weird. People aren't going to be paying attention to who's moving and who's going or whatever. It's totally fine. But there will be some prayers that will be up on the screen, and those prayers will maybe help you process. One of them just says, God, show me more. I, I, I'm curious. I'm here. I'd like to know more. If you pray that prayer, I would just encourage you to have eyes open because God will show you. You can watch what's happening around you and you can see the way that God's working. There's another prayer that says, God, I'm ready to follow you. I don't know all the stuff. I don't know, I'm not sure I have it all figured out. Um, you don't, by the way. <laughs> Neither do we. Um, but I'm ready to follow you. And so if that's what you pray, I would simply ask this, that you tell somebody that you prayed that prayer. You might use words like that or um, different words, but I would just encourage you to tell somebody because following Jesus is something that we need to do together and we want to be able to come alongside of you and we want you to come alongside of us. We need your help and you need our help. And so we would encourage you to have a conversation with someone. The last thing is if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus, but there's an area of your life that you are, you're continuing to hold on to. It's, it's an area that you just can't release before God. 
I would encourage you to also not go to one of these stations, but rather take this time to bring that before God, that that, that thing can be dealt with while you have the opportunity to deal with it. And so I'd encourage you to take this time for that. But the invitation is for all who are broken, who are in need of grace, like this woman may be very aware, or like the crowd that was around her, very unaware of the need that we have, to be able to go and intentionally say, Jesus, would you turn your face toward me? I know it's already there. Let me receive from you joy and peace and grace. So let me pray over us, and then as you're ready, I'm going to invite you to come to the stations and receive. Jesus, we are so grateful for the fact that um, you, you meet us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our sickness, in the midst of our brokenness. God, we sometimes like in our flesh for the things to work out differently than they do, but you, you meet us in the middle of it, and that's what we need. That's what uh, our deepest longing is for our, our hearts to encounter you. And so, God, whether we're coming in the midst of sickness or whether we're coming in the midst of things being really good right now, would you meet us with your face turned towards us and give us peace? Thank you for the broken body and the shed blood that you have reversed the way that this process works and that um, by receiving the broken body and the blood, we are given new life and cleansing. And so meet us at the table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.